Father God, um, wow is all I can say um, for the subject we're going to approach tonight. God, I thank you so much for what's in front of us. I hope that how profound your word is comes out tonight uh, as you use me as a vessel to teach it. Um, so please get me as much out of the way as possible and just let it be you. Because God, this is really awesome stuff. And I just pray that you're glorified tonight uh, and that we just love you more and more uh, as we come to know more and more about who you are and what your plan is. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we focused on the uh, five major sacrifices in the Levitical law and how they point to Jesus and how those sacrifices and their description are really a handbook for the Levitical priesthood to do their, do their job. And the major themes in the book of Leviticus is God's holiness um, and how separate and other he is. And because of that, how do we get to him? And that's really twofold in the book of Leviticus. It's through sacrifice or atonement, um, and then through sanctification or walking, living our lives with God. So last week, the sacrifices are all about atonement and the covering um, of our sins so that we can be pure before God and how that points to the sacrifice of Christ. This week, we're really talking about walking with God as well as some prophetic things as well. Um, but the feasts of Israel, which is what is covered in, in Leviticus 23, are annual festivals or holidays commanded by God for the Jewish people to experience. And they were to experience these year after year after year um, so that they could get an understanding of the God that they serve and the God that loves them. And so as they're doing this, it makes things abundantly clear when you see Jesus come on the scene. So that's what we'll really focus on tonight. Um, and we'll just jump right into Leviticus 23. We're going to do a whole chapter. All right, so 23 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be a holy convocation, to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Uh, so first up, before it actually gets into the major holidays, the seven major holidays, uh, there's one little section on the Sabbath. So it says, six days uh, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So I sort of, maybe I'm off base, but I, I understand that every week they sort of have a, the Jews had a special Shabbat or Sabbath dinner that they would participate in and it was commanded by God. Like, why is it in the festivals portion? Because it's not a, it's not a festival, it's, it's weekly. It's not, I mean, it's special, but it's not once a year special. It's every week. And I think that God included this because it really reminds us of the complete work of God in the fact that God created in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And the Sabbath was made for us. And it sets up that, that number of seven again and understanding the completeness of God. Because what follows are seven feasts, seven annual holidays. And so we're reminded of that institution of seven and God's holy number of completion as we move into 
seven annual feasts that the Jewish people will consume. Um, and a good, always a good reminder that God made the Sabbath for us, for us to rest. He understands that rest and a time set aside to spend with him is a good thing. So let's jump into the first festival. Um, it says the Passover and unleavened bread. So this is two separate festivals, but they overlap. The Passover is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and so sometimes it's referred to as the same thing. Sometimes Passover is referred to as Unleavened Bread. Sometimes the Feast of Unleavened Bread is referred to as Passover because Passover kicks it off. But it is two feasts, but they're connected. And they were instituted both um, in Exodus chapter 12. So if you want to spend a little bit more time on that, Exodus 12 is where to read. Um, and we covered that in our time in Exodus. So I'm not going to go overboard as we've already talked a lot about the Passover. But these are the feasts of the Lord, the convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So on the 14th day of the first month, this is the month of Nizan. Um, and that was instituted back in Exodus 12 when God told the people to make this their first month. So this is the first month of their religious calendar. The first month of their civic calendar is the seventh month, or six months later, the month of Tishri is the first month of their cultural calendar, but this is the first month of the religious calendar. And so on the 14th day um, of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, uh, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So on the 14th day of Nizan is when you sacrifice the Passover lamb. Um, this is representative of the, of the actual Passover that happened during the Exodus in Israel when you would paint the lamb's blood on the posts and lentils of the door. And then following that, you celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where you eat unleavened bread for seven days. Now, just reading that, you're thinking, I thought you said we we're going to see Jesus in this. Like, where, where is he? Um, well, let me explain. So interestingly, if you go back to Exodus 12, these are the things that you find out. So the 14th day of the month is the day that you sacrifice the lamb. And at, at that twilight, you eat the Passover dinner. And Passover dinner is what Jesus was eating at the Last Supper right before he was arrested. Interestingly, four days earlier, on the 10th of the month, is when you would pick the lamb out. You would pick the lamb out that you were going to sacrifice for Passover, and you would bring it into the house for four days, and then on the 14th is when you would sacrifice it. Okay, that's, those, those are the rules from Exodus that God gave for the Passover. Well, we know that Jesus was arrested on the 14th at night at Passover. And the rules for the Jewish time frame are not like we think of the world today. We think of sunup as the next day. Sunup is still part of the same day because it starts evening and goes to morning. So Jesus was crucified on the morning of Passover. It was still technically the Passover holiday. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was crucified on Passover. 
and the 10th of the month. So he was crucified on the 14th, the Passover. Interestingly, the 10th of the month is when you choose the lamb. The 10th of the month happens to be Palm Sunday. So the 10th of the month, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. And as he does so, the people acclaim him as the Messiah and say, oh, shout Hosanna as they wave palm branches. And they pick him out as the Messiah, not really remembering that part of the prophecies of the Messiah is that he will suffer. And he fulfills the Passover. In that, he's the lamb that was chosen on the day you choose the Passover lamb on Palm Sunday. And then is crucified and sacrificed on the actual Passover holiday, which goes against everything that Jewish law would have had them do. And this is why he was arrested at night and held trial at night so that the people wouldn't see what the Sanhedrin was doing because they shouldn't be doing this on the Passover holiday. So Jesus literally fulfilled everything related to the Passover feast for the Passover holiday, being the lamb that was chosen and being the lamb that was sacrificed four days later. And on that holiday, he tells his disciples at the Last Supper, as they break bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it and remember me. And then he does the same thing with the wine, where he says, this is my blood spilled out for you. Drink this in remembrance for what I've done for you, right? Interestingly, the 15th is the day that the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts. And so the day after Jesus is crucified, he's buried. And the disciples, because they're in Jerusalem on the holiday, they're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread with their families or in their own homes, and they're eating unleavened bread while Jesus is buried. Leaven means, represents sin. Yeast represents sin. They're eating sinless bread that Jesus told them was representative of his body during his burial at the same time that the feast is hap literally happening in that time frame. And so I heard uh, a pastor say that how interesting it is that Jesus literally fulfilled these on the exact days that they were occurring in the year that he died. And sometimes we think of it like that. Like Jesus, what a coincidence that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies on the exact days that the festivals were taking place. Would rather we should think how strategic and how planned out God is because since they exited Egypt and were given this law in the wilderness in Sinai, they have been practicing this for centuries. And as they do and remember everything that God has told them to do, they're seeing the fulfillment of it take place on the exact days of the feast, which is unbelievable. So God is, he's a miracle worker. And so the first two feasts we've already seen, and we, we discuss them in, in more detail in the, in the Exodus podcast. So if you want to go back and sort of re-listen to that to get a deeper, a deeper look at that, but we want to get through the whole chapter today. The next is the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, this starts in verse 9. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. You shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. 
and the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you weave the sheaf a male lamb in the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink, of, and its drink offering shall be wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall neither eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day uh, that you gave or that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout the generations in your dwellings. So after Passover is completed, the day after the following Sabbath, you are to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits requires a male lamb to be sacrificed without blemish. And it requires a grain offering of fine grain and oil and wine. That sounds like communion. Um, and interestingly, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning, Jesus is the first resurrected eternally. And because of his resurrection, he is the first fruits. He is the first resurrected eternally, but because of him, we can all expect to be resurrected eternally. So Jesus is our first fruits. And you see that a grain offering of bread and wine looks like communion. A male, without blemish, a male lamb without blemish. Jesus is the lamb of God, perfect without sin. Um, and his resurrection happened on Sunday after his resurrection, which would have been the first day after the first Sunday following the Sabbath after Passover. So again, Jesus is literally resurrected on the day of the year of his death that the festival of first fruits begins. So again, Jesus, on the exact day and time frame of the year of his death, he fulfills another feast on the day that that feast starts. And so we get a grasp of the first three feasts of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, what on earth do the rest of them look like? And what does this mean? Because all of a sudden, the picture is getting really clear that these things that, were, that they were supposed to be celebrating year after year after year are painting a picture of the Messiah and the work he's going to do. So what is the next feast? It's the Feast of Weeks, also known as Shavuot or Pentecost. Um, the reason it's called Pentecost is because it's 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which that's what Pentecost means, 50 days. So verse 15, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you have brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. This is the only time that leaven is offered in the temple. With leaven, they are the first fruits of the Lord, and you shall offer with bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice, a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. 
So you're waving the bread before the Lord, but this bread has leaven in it. The only time that this happens with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in, uh, in, oh, in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. When you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So at the end there, God is basically telling him, uh, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Shavuot is the main harvest, okay? And so when you're, when you're doing the main harvest to leave large, the outer portions of your field and the corners of your fields, um, don't reap them. Leave them available for the poor as basically like a welfare program uh, for the people who can't afford or don't have better options to come and glean from your fields so that they can eat, which is pretty compassionate from God. But the really interesting thing here is seven Sabbaths, and then the following day is the 50th day. So it's also a Sunday, because it's the day after a Sabbath again. And on this day, you bring an offering to the Lord, but the offering has leaven in it. This is the only time that we're allowed to do this. And this is part of the reason that churches moved to Sunday gathering as opposed to a Sabbath gathering. So Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. It's just considered the Lord's day because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday because it was the day after the first Sabbath of Passover. And the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost because it was at the Feast of Pentecost on a Sunday. And so a lot of the large movements of the church and the establishment of the church actually happened on Sunday at Pentecost with Peter. And so that's part of the reason for the move to Sunday worship. But the, the most unique thing about the Feast of Weeks is the leaven. It, you, can't, you can't miss it because over and over in the book of Leviticus and Exodus, you hear about baking bread with no leaven and offering things to God that don't have leaven in them. You're not even allowed to add honey because honey is an, is an activator for yeast and it helps it work faster. And so what is the deal? Why? Well, interestingly, Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost or, or the Feast of Weeks is exactly what happened when the Holy Spirit came down and when the church began. And so there are a lot of commentators who look at this and say, this is a really interesting fulfillment if what this is talking about is the Gentiles being roped into the family of God on starting at Pentecost. And now that the veil is torn at Jesus' crucifixion and the Holy Spirit has fully come down, now come to God as you are. You don't need to be ceremonially cleansed before you approach God. You can approach God as you are and God can clean you internally. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. You don't have to be clean before you go. You don't have to come with a sacrifice. The sacrifice has been done. Now you can come to God as you are, filled with leaven, and he can work the sin out of you. Um, and I think that that's a pretty powerful argument for that, considering what happened in Acts chapter 2. Now, I don't want to get too far off the rails, but this is the end of when you start seeing things that have been fulfilled on those days. And so the rest of the feasts may have future application because we don't see Jesus fulfilling them in his first coming. 
So they may have reference to the future or the second coming. And there are some who think that because the Feast of Pentecost represents the heavy harvest, which is also interesting, Jesus is the first fruits and then the harvest comes after that when the church starts, that Pentecost may also be a reference to the rapture because when the church exits, that would be the full fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost. I don't know that I buy that, but I share that with you as an interesting thought. Um, I don't like to label any of these as connection to the rapture, but I'll give you the ideas that other people have. So we come to the Feast of Trumpets. Now we've moved from the spring, which are the first three feasts happen in the month of Nizan. And then as we're coming towards the summer and exiting spring, you get the Feast of Pentecost. Now we're on the opposite side of the calendar. We're in fall. And interestingly, Passover kicks off the religious calendar, but the Feast of Trumpets kicks off the civic calendar, the cultural calendar. The Feast of Trumpets is now called Rosh Hashanah because it's the Jewish New Year for their cultural calendar. Its original name was Yom Teruah, but it's taken on Rosh Hashanah as the New Year since the Babylonian captivity. But it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And that's it. That's all that's there for the Feast of Trumpets. It's very mysterious. There's not a lot of information. There is a, there is a little bit of an extra blurb in, uh, in the book of Numbers. And I'll read that to you. Numbers 10.10. 10. It says, Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new moon feasts, which... I'll talk about that in a second. You are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So it's the new moon feast. So the, the new year kicks off when you see the new moon. So when you finally see that first sliver of moon catching in the month of Tishri, then you know that the new year has started. And so the tradition is, actually some have have related to this as when Jesus said in Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour, they think that it, this might actually be a parable relating to the Feast of Trumpets because the Feast of Trumpets or Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah has also been known as no one knows the day or the hour because you didn't know the day or the hour. You were waiting for the new moon to show up. And in order for it to be confirmed by the temple, you needed two witnesses to see the new moon that could corroborate their story with the priests, and then they would start blowing the trumpets. So you were unaware of when it was going to officially begin. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. That's not in, like, special writings and stuff. It's just a lot of, you know, hearsay that you get around. But um, what is interesting is what happens in Numbers 10, that they blow the trumpets, and this is a reminder. It's a memorial to them before God. So God remembers Israel when they blow the trumpets. Now, just before Numbers 10.10, 10, you actually see them blowing the silver trumpets um, in relation to battle. And God remembers to fight on behalf of Israel when they blow the trumpets. And then you see it again at the Feast of Trumpets. This, when you blow the trumpets, it's a memorial for God to remember them. Now, in a lot of commentaries in the Talmud, in the Midrash, you also see that in 10 days is the Day of Atonement, which is the next festival. And so there's a lot of commentators that talk about the trumpets are a memorial to the people of Israel to remember to repent 
um, and go through the days of repentance, the 10 days before the day of atonement. It's a reminder to give yourself back up to God. But scripturally, it really points to God remembering Israel. And because of that, there's also a lot of scholars who think that this has to do with the rapture again, because the church exits the scene and God's focus turns from the church back wholeheartedly to Israel. Um, and this is the Feast of Trumpets, God remembering Israel. Again, I don't give a lot of credit to that, but I, what I do think is interesting is the tradition of the two witnesses seeing the new moon and confirming that with the priests to begin the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, because if it is related to the end time stuff, we know that in Revelation, there are two witnesses that minister for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period that kick off the tribulation period. So this could also be related to the two witnesses coming on the scene, proclaiming the end and the return um, because of their ministry, the 144,000 sealed Jews that start preaching the, the gospel and the, basically the revival of the Jewish people in the end times. It could be related to that. Um, again, do a lot of your own research. I don't, I don't want to claim that I know exactly what this is about, but there's a lot of interesting parallels. Uh, and the Feast of Trumpets is kind of a mystery, and it's kind of fun to theorize and figure out what it could be. And then we get to the Day of Atonement, which we're going to spend next week really breaking down and going to Leviticus 16. But um, this is very, Jesus is very clearly seen on, on the scene here. It says in verse 26, in the, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, also the 10th day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls uh, and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord and you shall do the work, do no work on that same day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in the soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So we've seen, you know, throughout the feasts, people don't work. But on the day of atonement, you get really strong language here of do not work on this day or I will destroy you, <laughs> says God. Um, why? I think because this day points so clearly to Jesus. And when we talked about the high priestly robes, right? On the day of atonement, he strips off the glorious part and only wears the white linen coming into the Holy of Holies as a pure sin, looking, reflecting a pure sinless man to offer the sacrifice for the nation, right? Like that's so clearly a picture of Jesus. And so doing work, doing your own work on a day that so represents the atonement that Jesus gave us is such a horrible picture of what the gospel really should be because you can't save yourself. That's literally the point of the gospel. Jesus does the work, not you. The atoning work is done by Jesus. You just receive it. And so this is like God saying, no, don't work. Just receive the atonement today. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. Uh, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So yeah, the day of atonement, we're going to break it down more, but next week. So I don't want to go too far into it because I really want to spend a lot of time on this next week. But this day is very interesting. Now, I will tell you some of the tradition. Uh, so part of the day of atonement is the priest, offer, the high priest offers a sacrifice for himself 
so that he can enter the Holy of Holies and then comes back in to the Holy of Holies a second time to offer a sacrifice for the people because he has to be clean ceremonially to offer the sacrifice for the people. So he really has to be the picture of Jesus. But there's also, outside of the sacrifice and the blood that goes into the Holy of Holies, there's also the scapegoat. Uh, and the scapegoat is a goat where the, the, pre, the high priest would lay two hands on the head of the goat, transferring the sin of the nation onto the goat. And he would confess the sins publicly out loud as he presses his hands on the head of the goat. Um, and, then and then they would send it off into the wilderness. Now, there is a tradition that they would tie a scarlet thread around, or a scarlet handkerchief around the scapegoat. And this is in Talmudic tradition. And sometimes that scarlet handkerchief would turn white as though God had accepted the offering and sin that was crimson became white as snow purified. Um, and there was also like some tradition about them casting lots and whether it fell on the right or the left, all of that. But in Talmudic tradition, interestingly, after the destruction of the, or I should say after Jesus's death, or, you know, in, in the early 30s AD, up to 70 AD, with the destruction of the temple, there is Jewish historic writings in the Talmudic writings that every single year for nearly 40 years between the death of Jesus on the cross and um, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that every single year, the, the lots that they cast went to the left hand instead of the right, showing that God didn't favor that sacrifice and that 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 scarlet handkerchief did not turn white for every single one of those years. Um, and there's like a, a rabbi who basically said, this doesn't mean that Jesus is the Messiah, but he explains no explanation as to why this random coincidence happened. Um, and so that's just interesting that in the Jewish writings, they recognize that it seems like after Jesus's crucifixion, every single year, their traditions to see that God would have accepted the atonement sacrifice never was fulfilled through their traditions as it had been prior. And so that's just really interesting stuff. Um, to that, you know, I don't, I wasn't there, but these are just writings of Jewish rabbis, not Christian sources. So very interesting. And then we move into the final feast. Be, before we do that, let me give you some ideas about what potentially the Day of Atonement means for the future. What some have, some scholars have suggested the prophetic means of the Day of Atonement is. Um, some see the Day of Atonement as potentially uh, fulfilled during the abomination of desolation uh, in the great that kicks off the great tribulation because there will be another temple um, and sacrifices will be made again. Um, and then at the abomination of desolation, when the, the new temple is desecrated, that then the Antichrist will cut off sacrifices from the temple. There will no longer be any sacrifices. Um, and this will be the moment that the Jews run into the wilderness and see God's provision as they hide from the Antichrist. And so this is like the full ultimate revival in connection with God, maybe. Um, others see it as maybe this is the actual physical return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And so this is the moment that Zechariah talks about um, when Jesus steps on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives is split into two. And, they, and as, as Zechariah says, they look on him who they have pierced and like they weep and they, because they now know after all this has gone on and they see the Messiah coming, that he is the Messiah, and now they're ready to give their lives to him. Um, so maybe, all of those are big maybes, but they're interesting, and I just think, you know, there's something to mull over and think about. So the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this one I'm pretty sure about when it comes to the future stuff. I think I'm pretty doggone sure 
that I know what this one's all about. Remember, tabernacles means to God dwelling with us or us dwelling with God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to the holy, uh, to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all of your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings, uh, which you give to the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. On the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And, uh, and you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Here you go. You shall dwell in booths or tabernacles or tents um, for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared the children to the children of Israel, the feasts of the Lord. So within the seven, the seven holidays, starting with first fruits, you see them really related to agriculture. These are the first sort of um, gleanings from the, the crops, right? It's the first fruits. And you see the major harvest at Pentecost. And then oddly enough at the Feast of Trumpets is sort of the last bits of the harvest that are left. And then it moves into the Day of Atonement dealing with sin of the people. And then Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, is all about a reminder of their wandering in the wilderness. When they dwelled with God, God was at the tabernacle in the center of the people, and they dwelled all around him in tents. And so for seven days every year, they're to dwell in tents out in the wilderness to remember this. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles. God dwells with us. And that's what they're remembering. And actually in Revelation, there's reference to the whole world celebrating this in the millennial kingdom. Um, so I think because of what it means, because of what the word tabernacle means and what is happening here, that the fulfillment of this is the millennial kingdom of Christ. This is the, the kingdom fully set up. Jesus is reigning. We are living with Christ for a thousand years. And I think that that is, that is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it seems pretty clear to me that that makes a lot of sense, especially since it's referenced in Revelation, that it will be celebrated among the nations, not just, not just the Jewish people. But this is probably my favorite one because... I don't, I don't know. I guess I think going out into nature, and though I'm not Jewish and I'm not a Hebrew person, I still, I still can grasp the concept of what it's like to be out in nature, seeing God revealing himself as you're there. And just really because you're not surrounded by the comforts of everyday life, he is able to be like your, your focus. And what a, just what a cool picture that is. So those are the seven feasts of Israel. Now, because the first four were so drastically fulfilled, not just in their principle, but on the actual days that the feasts commenced, the next three, the fall feasts, seem to have prophetic implications for the last days. I don't know that any of those guesses are right or that we got any of them right, but I do know because God has kept his promises 
so deliberately and so detailed in the past that when it happens again, and it, A, it will, because he's always kept his promises and we keep seeing it happening. When it happens, it's going to be undeniable. And uh, I look forward to it, especially dwelling with God. That is the ultimate gift. So with that, let's pray. Father God, thank you. This is pretty amazing stuff. And uh, I just ask that, you know, as we consider it and understand how profound the things that you have set up thousands of years ago have come to such incredible fruition um, and detailed fulfillment, that we can just have stronger faith in you and look so forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the last feast and living and dwelling with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.